Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. I'm here with Mike Ferguson, the CEO of the Self-Insurance Institute of America, and we're on site at the SIA National Conference in San Francisco, and Mike has agreed to be my guest on my podcast today. So, Mike, thank you very much for being here. Absolutely, Dorothy. It's nice to see you. We've known each other for many years. I hate to say decades, but that's the truth. Um, if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about SIA, what you do, um, how you help the self-insured marketplace in general. Sure. So SIA uh, is a nonprofit trade association. The way I describe it is we re- represent companies that are involved in the self-insurance marketplace. Uh, so that would entail self-insured entities, third-party administrators, broker consultants like your, yourselves, uh, stop-loss carriers, captive insurance managers, uh, and a whole bunch of other companies that provide specialized services that help uh, employers operate their self-insured programs. Great. Why do you think employers should self-insure? Well, there's, uh, there's several reasons to consider. I'd first say as a disclaimer, even though we're in the business of promoting self-insurance, uh, one of the first things I will say in response normally to that question is self-insurance is not the right option for all employers. There's, a, there's uh, several reasons why it's not a good fit for certain employers. But for those that are, and we can talk about uh, those criteria a little bit, a little bit later, but for those that are, I think there's, there's three major uh, advantages that I would, uh, I would uh, articulate for you now, one of which uh, is... Um, there's a, there's a likelihood that they will be able to save money under a self-insured arrangement. Um, I'll caveat a bit by saying that, that the likelihood of saving money is uh, related to their uh, commitment to make it a multi-year arrangement and not simply a going into self-insurance on a one-year type of situation where they felt a single year their insurance premiums were too high. And the way I would explain this is um, kind of put it in, in financial advisor terms where you know, a, a kind of standardized presentation that financial advisors will give to uh, investors is that they'll they'll talk about a time horizon for investments, whereby if you uh, you know if you have a balanced portfolio that's invested consistently, that you'll get you know an average of eight percent return you know, over a sort of a ten year time window, and they can they can then extrapolate those numbers off and show you started with X and then you're going to get X plus eight percent over over a uh, an extended time period. But within that time period, uh, you know, each year will be a different scenario. It won't be that 8%. There'll be some years where you'll do better. So you'll earn 14%. Some maybe uh, maybe you'll do less at 3%. And some years you have a recession and you're upside down and you're losing money in an individual year. That's kind of the same sort of concept I would apply to a self-insured arrangement where your, your major cost under self-insured plan is your cost of claims. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you set up your plan correctly and management correctly, you, you have a better chance to control those claims, but still there are going to be certain years where things are going to come up that are beyond your control. You're going to have an employee come down with stage four cancer. You're going to have uh, premature uh, births. Uh, you're going to have car accidents. You're going to have a variety of completely unforeseen and uncontrollable scenarios. And so you'll likely over a 10-year window, you're going to get a year or two that if, if you just looked at it in isolation, you might have been better off going in the fully insured marketplace. But for those companies that have a longer view of things, typically they're going to be saving money o- over time. And, and, and I've seen that to be true with, with uh, our own clients. And I usually tell them we look in five-year cycles. Mm-hmm. And so we hope that the 
first year isn't a bad year sure, sure. Uh, because then they won't want to continue doing it. Yeah. But usually one out of five years, what we've seen historically, um, they've had uh, a, a year that's not been that great. But uh, generally, again, if they look over the five-year cycle, and they, they have saved money. And I've got clients that have been self-insured for 15, 20, 25 years. Uh, and they pretty much have told me time and time again that their costs overall have been under the fully insured market anywhere from 10 to 25 percent. So it's been they've been very very happy with it. As you're absolutely right, it's not suitable for everyone, uh, and that's the most important decision I think they need to make up front is whether or not they are a good candidate. We'll talk more about that. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit about how self insurance has changed in the past, say, five to 10 years? Well, I would say the marketplace has changed to the extent that it's moving. What I would say, sort of down market, meaning that you know, historically. You know, all the big companies have been self-insured for years and years and years. The Fortune, if you look at the Fortune 5000 list, I would say 90% plus of those companies are self-insured. And the ones that are not, there's some particular odd circumstance that probably is uh, the reason why. Um, and But over the years, and most recently, next say in the last five, six years, maybe even ten years, the, the there is a, a growing um, market share within sort of smaller mid-market companies. And I think... Uh, one of the reasons, one of the main drivers is there are more companies in the marketplace now that are helping employers effectively operate their self-insured plans. So, you know, as, uh, the smaller you are on the spectrum, the more help you're going to need. Uh, and there's more resources now that are available to you as an employer that uh, brokers like yourself can help uh, bring in uh, as part, part of putting them together the plan so that that employer, um, it's e a, easier for them to self-insure and they have more tools uh, to help mitigate their risk. Uh, and also just to help run their plan more efficiently. I absolutely agree with that. Can you tell me about the effect that reference-based pricing has had on the self-funded marketplace? Well, it's a major topic of uh, discussion within our uh, association, and you know, for your viewers, maybe just catching up on this, this is just an, uh, an alternative payment scenario where in a, a typical self-insured arrangement, you'd have a self-insured employer that's it has a uh, provider network that has some sort of discount off, uh, you know, otherwise standardized fees, and and they they go through that in terms of that's their you know their their payment terms mechanism. Um, you know, folks that are advocating for reference-based pricing will suggest that you know that even though there's a discount off uh, as part of these PPO networks, since the the, the gross price is so inflated, uh, the argument is that even a discount off a Highly uh, inflated gross price um, means that the employer is really not getting a good deal on the health care that they're purchasing. So, reference-based pricing is an approach where you've got uh, uh, facilitated by companies that work with employers that, that um, set up a different payment scenario where it's a percentage, generally a percentage of Medicare, say Medicare plus 30, 40 percent, whatever the particular rate is, and they'll pay that to the provider in lieu of a sort of network type price. Um, that has been, from what I can tell, is been there's there's been pockets that have been uh, of employers that this has been very successful, um, some not quite as successful. Um, it's certainly an increasingly important cost management tool in the short run. Um, you know, longer term, we'll, we'll, we'll see. There's, there's a, there is a concern that you know, hospitals will start pushing back more aggressively on, on this to the extent that more claims are processed through reference-based pricing. But, you know, in the in the short term, there are certainly many employers, uh, self-insured employers, that are enjoying some success with this strategy. 
Yes, we've actually we've actually put some clients um, in reference-based pricing plans recently, and, and so far they're doing very well, and mm -hmm. we have not received anywhere near the kind of pushback that we thought we would mm -hmm. get. Uh, I think that the hospitals are becoming more and more familiar with it. Of course, we're located on the West Coast in California, so I started a little bit later than than people had across the country because it started across the country and it took a while to get west and and I didn't want my clients to be quote unquote guinea pigs when sure. they were when they were starting this and so by the time I started it I started educating them a few years ago and started putting plans in place um, the hospitals were already on board with it they were pretty comfortable with it um, I've got a couple of clients that are actually doing fully reference based pricing even with doctors mm -hmm. that's a little bit more of a, a learning curve but it's nice to know that they can use a, a standardized price in reference-based pricing because they can set their rate at 130% of Medicare, 140% of Medicare, whatever the rate is that they select, 150%. And it's transparent. We know going in what the costs are. And when you compare it to PPO networks, what we've been seeing is that PPO networks, you talked about the inflated price. Um, we're seeing here, um, you know, usually retail rates of hospitals are, you know, 600 to 900% of Medicare rates. Yeah. And... Uh, PPO networks, we're seeing contracts that are discounted at 300 to 500 or 600%. Yes, that is a discount. But when you're comparing that to the 140% or 150% of Medicare, that's quite substantial. So, so far, it's been working well for us, and, and uh, uh, we took it actually from you, and I wanted to thank you because SIA was the first organization that introduced me to reference-based pricing and started educating me way back when, and uh, I just kind of wrote it for a while and yep. educated myself and made sure I was yep. up to speed with it before I introduced it to my clients. And so far, it's, it's paid off. So yep. thank you for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what about provider contracting? How has that been affected? Um, how has that been affecting uh, groups and their self -insurance? Well, I guess that's a kind of segue from our last topic. I guess maybe a little bit of a formalized uh, reference-based pricing approach in the sense that you've got, uh, you know, employer groups that are entering into um, – more comprehensive contracts with providers, hospitals, and others, um, where the fees and other terms of services are dictated on a bilateral basis between the payer and the, and the uh, provider. Um, and that <clears throat> is also a, a hot topic of conversation, um, and it does seem to be increasing with popularity. Uh, from what I, what I can see, it seems to be the, the um, results seem to be a little bit uneven by geography. There seems mm -hmm. to be some pockets of the country where this is seems to be taking off more, some less. Obviously, you need to have a, the right match uh, for direct contracting arrangement to make sense. The, you, have to have a, uh, you have to have a hospital system that is uh, interested in that arrangement, and also you have to have an employer or groups of employers that, that have a large enough nucleus of, of planned participants, uh, economies of scale, to make, right. it, make it worthwhile. Oh, it's all about volume. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So you've got to have the right volume there. So there's a certain certain matchmaking component of that. And, you know, we've talked a lot about SIA about how our members can figure out how to, to do that more. I was actually meeting with some folks at the American Hospital Association earlier in the year, and they're actually interested in identifying on their own. They're, they see this as, as a win-win for, uh, for their members, uh, primarily because the, the big pain point for, for the hospital system is the, is the collections. Yeah. Um, and they don't, they don't want to have to go out and try to collect money for obvious reasons. And so if they can enter into agreement with enough volume that, that will mitigate their requirement to go chase payments, you know, they, they're very open to that opportunity. Yes. 
let's move on to a different topic. And you're, you're absolutely right. I, I'm, I'm happy to see that that's, that's going forward and it's, it's progressing nicely. Let's address the legislative impact that SIA has had on the self-insured marketplace and talk about some of the major types of legislation that the association has been a part of and your most important successes in recent years. Well, we've been busy for a while, yeah, uh, I <laughs> candidly. Uh, I would say, you know, the, the big ticket item, uh, the real big ticket item was at the front end of um, the discussion about the Affordable Care Act, um, early drafts of the legislation had actual prohibitions on employers' ability to self-insure. Right. Uh, in the Senate, I believe it was at 500 lives. In the House, it was 250 lives. Right. So that. if that, uh, and SIA was instrumental in getting that stripped out, if that was not the case, if you are uh, under 500 employees, uh, potentially, or 250, which I suspect, Dorothy, probably many of your clients are probably in that demographic yes, group, or at least some of them, mm -hmm. we would even be having this discussion here. Right. Uh, exactly. And so that, you know, and then there's been many things over the years that we've been we've been dealing with. Most recently, we're, we're dealing with issues regarding the healthcare transparency. We're dealing with, right now, uh, surprise medical billing, uh, which is a hot issue. We're trying to, uh, their Congress is looking at different uh, legislative fixes on how to uh, prevent the number of surprise medical bills that we're getting now in the marketplace and one of the options would be more favorable for uh, hospitals and one would be more favorable towards uh, payers uh, like uh, like our, our folks so we're trying to make sure that that uh, goes the right way and of course outside of DC we're always dealing with or continuously dealing with developments at the state level uh, primarily as it relates to the regulation of stop-loss insurance mm -hmm. because since um, self-insured plans are governed by ERISA federal law um, the states can't directly regulate them, but they can regulate their stop-loss arrangements. And, and they so, have. And they have. Uh, so this has been an ongoing, every year we, we have some states where we have uh, that is in play. And there's other things as well at the state level, too, that uh, keep us keep us busy every year. We usually have five or six states that are considering something that would be problematic for our members. Right. So if a large employer is considering self-funding, or any size employer, actually, uh, what advice would you give them as far as getting started? So first is I do a little reality check and look at your financial statements. <laughs> uh, probably the first, because at, at the heart is uh, you need to be able to write the check when the claim comes in. Right. Um, and uh, as you know, we talked about earlier, that the, the cost of claims is unpredictable. Right. So you could have some quiet months, you could have some very expensive months, and you need to have the, you need to have the cash flow uh, to, to be able to, to, to do that. So that's... Step number one, two, is I think you just need to have, um, you know, you need to do a self-assessment and make sure that, as we talked about earlier, self-insurance is most successful when it's a long-term proposition. Right. So you really need to have the buy-in from the, you know, the senior executive team that this is, we're going to roll up our sleeves and this is going to be a priority for us, which it should, given that in many companies, healthcare costs are, you know, one of the top items on the, the P&L right. sheet, right? Absolutely. And Absolutely. It's, all, it's always amazing how companies sort of put that on autopilot when, when they will scrutinize every other thing on their, on their you know, expense statement that are, is way less money than, right. than the health care. Um, once you sort of have done that reality check and that you, you think you want to sort of move in that direction, the next thing is that you want to make sure you've got a trusted advisor like Dorothy uh, and her firm uh, to, uh, to help guide you in the setup. Most companies are not in the healthcare business. They're right. making widgets or doing some right. other useful uh, function, and uh, so if you need somebody, whether it's a, a broker advisor like Dorothy, a third-party administrator, uh, or some other entity that has a very st strong expertise in self-insurance to, to help you um, put the pieces together, it's not, 
Uh, it's not overly burdensome, but it's something that needs to be done correctly in order for uh, you to reap the benefits and, more importantly, um, uh, avoid potential pitfalls for plans that are not set up correctly. Right. They need to be set up. They yeah. need to have a correct pl you know, plan document that's written properly. Is SPDs. You need, there are so many different components, just like you know, the insurance company would do for you if you were fully insured, but you don't have an insurance company, so the employer has to understand that they are the fiduciary in charge of this, and, and there's liability involved with that, and, and you're right, they absolutely have to have the best possible vendors. Um, that's, that's really, really key. Um, obviously, I'm a broker consultant, and I've specialized in self-funding my entire career, as you know. Um, managing a TPA for 12 years before moving into the uh, consultant and broker role, uh, many years ago now, um, I hate to admit how many decades it's been since I've been doing this, but uh, um, you know, it takes it takes a lot of expertise to, to do this well. Now, a lot of people can do it; they can dabble in it. But if you want to do this well, you've got to do it with, with in my opinion, also um, good good partners. Mm -hmm. so what do you think the uh, uh, how important is the role of people like myself, brokers and consultants, in, in managing this type of thing, setting it up and managing it? We touched on it a bit, but yeah. Well, I think it's it's pretty critical, and saying a couple of ways is, <clears throat> is one is actually the guidance of helping your client determine whether it's the right decision for right. them. That's that's number one. Right. I mean, a, you know, a a a, a good broker consultant is going to should be um, the person that provides you candid you know advice and, right. and what is the best option for you as the as the employer. And, and, and historically, it, I can say from a, for a fact, I know that I have advise as many employers to not self-insure yeah. as I have advised them to self-insure. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah, and I think, too, is, um, and there's a couple varieties of self-insurance even with that. I mean, you, you can, what we sort of say is, you know, kind of there's 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. I mean, 1.0 is, is is a, you know, kind of what we call an ASO arrangement where right. you're, you know, kind of have a, a bundled administrative sort of structure through a insurance company-owned administrator. Um, uh, and, you know, some people are critical of that arrangement because that's not, well, that's not the, you know, the, the advanced level self-insurance, the peer right. self-insurance. But cases, okay, you know what, uh, that's, you know, sometimes you got to have to walk before you can run. Right. Some people are conservative. They're not, yeah. they want to go slowly, and that is a good way to yeah. do it. So you're going to, the advisor's going to need to know you and, you, and be able to, to assess you. And then, and then at that point, you know, the, the role is once you've made that go decision, then that broker advisor is going to be critical in pulling together the, the players that you're going to need to run your program efficiently. I mean, you're going to need a third-party administrator. You're going to need stop-loss insurance. Um, you're going to need a variety of, or you, or you may not need, but you, to your benefit, in most cases, to have a variety of other types of companies involved from a pharmacy benefit manager to technology vendors right. to different types of companies that will help you run the program most efficiently. And it's really, you know, the employer is trusting their broker advisor to bring sort of best in class uh, to the uh, to the table, and to make sure that that those uh, those vendor partners are properly coordinated. Right. Um, you know, we've seen uh, that uh, sometimes that the, the the broker advisor, that particularly those that are newer to self insurance, that they don't quite understand necessarily who all the players are, right. and they either a may not bring the right players to the table that fit the client's needs. Or even sometimes they bring the right players, they don't properly coordinate them. And that can cause problems that, uh, um, that, that will either short-term or long-term, but eventually something usually goes awry. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about that. And the nice thing about self-insurance, too, is if one of those players isn't working out well, the great thing about self-insurance is you can replace that one player that isn't working out. Yeah. Maybe that PPO network you thought would be really, really strong 
but now you have a new location and it's not as strong or there's no providers available yeah. there. So you can change that out or add additional providers or, or go toward reference-based pricing. And if your third-party administrator you're having problems with and you want to change, you can do that and your plan can still yeah. go on. It's it's its own legal entity and it can c continue. You can just change out the partners that, that uh, they're not working quite as well for yeah, you exactly. as time goes on. So that makes it really nice. So how can employers, brokers and consultants, TPAs, stop-loss carrier, carriers, and all the other vendors involved in this, these types of arrangements, how can they benefit from being members of, uh, of SIA and groups like this? Well, you know, there's probably several things I could cite. Uh, you know, we're a good source of, of, of information about all things self-insurance and captive insurance. We kind of, we disseminate either through, you know, we have a magazine, you know, email alerts, we have educational conferences like we are now, and, you know, 40 different educational sessions that are going on this week that, you know, really hit on, every sort of variation on the theme in terms of how to, how to run your self-insured uh, plan most effectively. So, you know, there's a lot of information that's shared within, within SIA. And I think a, a lot of it, too, is um, to be able to um, interact and meet uh, the other the players in the mm -hmm. industry. Um, this is a very relationship-driven industry. Yes, um, it is. People, people work together that have, have been able to meet at SIA to sort of develop a poor relationship develops trust. I'm sure, Dorothy, you, you know, probably most, if not all, of your business partners are SIA members. Uh, Pretty much all of them, That yeah. you've developed over the years, and you've had a chance to, you know, kind of see them first firsthand, and, and uh, you know, you've, you've, you've been able to, you know, prioritize who you want to work with. Um, and then it's just also an area, for, it's also an opportunity for dialogue among the, the key, you know, players, uh, you know, among between the TPAs and the carriers and the brokers to to have dialogue to figure out how everyone can work better together, where the we're kind of the one clear. And also, house. just and also trends and everything else, and how things are changing throughout the industry. It's the best yeah. way. It's the best way to to do that. So yeah. I agree. Well, thank you. I know your time is limited here. You have a big conference that you're running here, but I do appreciate very much you're taking the time to participate in my podcast. So thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dorothy. All right. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3, toll-free at 866-658-3835, or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.